What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Joined in the studio with me is my co-host, Austin. How's Yo. it going, man? And then we got Daniel behind the screens over there. How's it going? And boy, do we got a good episode for you today. We are going to be diving into probably the most famous exorcist of all time. And that is Father Gabriele Amort. And one of the reasons why I've actually wanted to cover this guy for a long time and rest in peace, he's no longer with us, but he's a very, very interesting individual because he is considered the Pope's exorcist or was considered the Pope's exorcist, like the top of the top when it comes to individuals who the Vatican sanctions to provide exorcisms or perform exorcisms for those that need it. And what's really cool is that there's a movie that just came out this past week called The Pope's Exorcist featuring uh, starring Russell Crowe. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really looking forward to hopefully getting out to the theater and see it. And so today we're going to be diving into his his life story and some of his experiences that he's had as an exorcist. And we're also going to be talking about a film that was done by William Friedkin, who is the director of The Exorcist film. And he actually went... Because one of the things about Father Gabriella Amor is that nothing was ever done on video. He's very private about, you know, they, they keep this stuff very hush when it comes to exorcisms. So this was kind of the first time, I believe, in history where they allowed a, a you know, somebody to come in and film an exorcism performed by Gabriella Amor. And so we're going to play a little clip from a film that William Friedkin did. And it's not the best film by any means. We're going to try to pull some of the highlights up from it to save you... <laughs> Uh, the time of money to go and rent this film because it's it's definitely not the best documentary I've ever seen but yeah. there's a couple highlights in there that we'll definitely pull out and show you because I think it's important to understanding just what Father Amort was up against and at the end of the day it really comes down to your spiritual beliefs do you believe in demons do you believe in you know God do you believe in heaven hell and is it actually demons that are possessing these individuals that they're performing exorcisms on? And I think that's, it's a very, the whole thing, just demonic possession as a whole, I don't know about you, is very interesting to me. Yeah, and like historically interesting too. I didn't right. realize how far back it goes. It's rooted in a lot of mythology and yeah, it's kind of more common than we think. Did you, because obviously many of you know that both Austin and I kind of grew up religious um i grew up in you know the protestant church austin grew up in the catholic church yeah so were you taught about demons growing yeah, up yeah yeah um the concept of hell and satan was a very present yeah. thing in, from in how early did you were you taught very early especially hell the concept of hell that's where we get our catholic guilt from it's like <laughs> oh god we feel bad about everything we do because yeah it's kind of instilled in us that if you do these bad things, you go to the worst place. So it, it, especially hell, Satan is definitely a presence, um, but he's more, he's a little bit more abstract, at least in the teachings that I was raised with. It wasn't like this like guy with horns. Okay. It was more like Satan is temptation. Satan is sin. Sin. Yeah. It's more like that. A representative of, of those things versus this physical entity that... Yeah rules this underworld and sends its minions out to exactly to interesting and, and that's huh. why even going through this and researching it i was like 
even though this hits close to home, this is kind of a, still a niche subject in the Catholic Church. And yeah, it's yeah. kind of debated even in the Catholic Church if it, this is what's genuine and what's not, you know. Yeah, and it's obviously evolved over time quite a bit. But it is interesting that there's a lot of, if you go, if you just go to your local, you know, parish or go to your local church and ask for an exorcism, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Like, right. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. Yeah. And if you'd get lucky if you're in a diocese that has one assigned exorcist, because I think it's up to the archdeacon or archbishop. I think it's the archbishop. Bishop, I'm pretty sure might yeah, be the deacon though of of the diocese that has to assign an exorcist. So not all dioceses even have an exorcist, right? Yeah, and then I believe it has to go almost all the way up to the top, depending on where you are in the world. And yeah, it's pretty high ranking has to sign off on it. I I wish I remembered the the rank, the hierarchy of of Catholics yeah, it's priests, but pretty I, complicated. Yeah, but yeah, it does have to go pretty high up to get an official church sanctioned exorcism. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So like for me personally, the concept of hell and demonic forces has been pretty prevalent throughout my life. And even now, like I'm not, I'm not a practicing religious person by any means. I'm, I'm don't even consider myself religious. I do consider myself spiritual. So I do still have a belief in good versus evil and, there's negative and positive forces out there. I just don't know if it's how the Bible describes it. If it all works, it's all that simple and easy to understand, right? right. Like it's much more complicated than that. But from an early age, I was taught that that you know there are things in life and temptations, and there's also just certain things you should avoid because that is the devil's at work. And potentially, you know, I was told, and this is just sounds stupid, but if I read about darker things such as witchcraft, you know, Harry Potter, I think I mentioned that before on the show, I wasn't allowed to watch that for a long time because my parents truly believe that if I started reading or watched films, like I was very censored as a kid. Like I didn't watch any movies. I, I didn't even like, I didn't listen to mainstream music. I didn't watch mainstream movies. And so the reason for this was because my parents truly believe that if I filled my head with these things, like if I started learning about witchcraft, that maybe, you know, if I started thinking on that too much or believing in it too much, that it was real, that it would open my, I guess, my soul up for demonic forces to enter. And I believe my parents for a long time were under the belief that it is possible to become demonically possessed by just consuming this type of content. Wow. Yeah. And, Literally, that's like what I was told for a long, long time until I got into my teenage years and kind of started figuring things out for myself. I'm like, I'm fine. What are you talking yeah. about? That's not that far off from Catholicism. I guess in Catholicism, they don't scare you by saying that you're open to possession, that these demons are going to invade your body. Uh, their fear tactic is hell. So it's actually not too different, but it, one instance it's, yeah, you're being invaded by demons. The other one is you're sent to where the demons hang out, right? Yeah, so right, it's, right. it's not that far off. Well, and just if you, I got really, really interested in revelations of the Bible. That book is and, crazy. And like diving into just the nitty gritty of it. And 
when you actually like break it down, there's this whole, I mean, there's so much information around this topic of, of demons and angels and kind of how it all happens, right? You know, how, how did Lucifer end up to where, you know, he was this ruler of hell and, you know, to find out that he was once one of God's angels, it like tripped me out completely. I was like, what? Yeah, this is crazy. And he was cast out of heaven and then he posted up down below somewhere <laughs> yeah, and started gathering all this evil to him and yeah and we kind of touched on that in hoska castle right that right. was the whole thing yeah the, the archangel right. uh you know cast his legions and, and the satan out of hell and yeah and, and i guess they're somewhere in uh the czech republic trying yeah. to leak out right yeah i guess if you dig deep enough you'll you'll run into them eventually <laughs> yeah. but yeah no i just wanted to provide some context overall around demonic possession the belief systems behind it and so this topic in general is very interesting to me and and when i watch those that are you know say that they're possessed part of me wants to believe that that may be the case but then more of my rational side comes in and the logical side is like is that what's really going on and then you kind of dive into it scientifically and look at it and you start realizing that because you have all you know you're predisposed to all this religious material because that's the thing right is like how many non-religious people are seeking out an exorcist or have experienced an exorcism in their life and it's i think it's like virtually none yep so it's those that believe you have to believe in the faith for this to even be a thing and and that's what father amar would say be like you have to believe in the exorcism you have to believe in the power of god you have to believe that this is the devil in order for any of this to work. If you're just somebody who's a non-believer, give me an exorcist. It's not going to do anything. Right. And, and with that said, it's, it's doesn't mean that those cases are frauds or, or made up. There's clearly something going on with a lot of the cases that they cover, whether that's psychological or actually something demonic happening is, is the debate. Right. But clearly you can see a lot of instances and we'll, we'll cover some where, yeah, it doesn't seem like they're faking. It yeah, doesn't seem like yeah. someone's fraudulent about it. But well, that's always the the hardest part is like discerning whether or not somebody is actually having some sort of episode um psychologically or if there's something more going on. And I, I think what's interesting is that when you dive into it and you actually hear experts and neurosurgeons and people who study the brain they even say there's instances where in throughout their careers where they've encountered situations that made no sense to them. And maybe later on they they're able to find out answers as to why somebody was doing these things, but there's still mysteries of the brain and neuroscience that we don't, we don't, I mean, think about how complex the brain is and how much is going on up there. I mean, it's the same thing with consciousness. We don't even know, where consciousness stems from there's the you know a lot of people think consciousness originates in the brain but more and more studies are showing that it originates in the heart potentially which is really interesting there's a heart mind connection there that we didn't know for many 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 years so there's still i think there's still this mysticism around the brain and consciousness and spirituality where we haven't quite connected all the dots and so i think there is still room to leave yourself open to the possibility that perhaps there are spiritual forces around us. I think there's things that are 
we're not able to see that are occurring all around us and are affecting this reality. And whether it's an actual demon from hell or it's an angel from heaven, I think that's up for debate. But I do believe that there is two, you know, these forces at work in some capacity. And at least that's kind of what I've deduced from my life is that's kind of what's going on. It's this unseen, there's this unseen world. I mean, when you think about paranormal activity as a whole, so much of it's unexplainable, even a science. And so that I tend to believe in this other dimension that's around us where things are happening that are kind of bleeding over into our, our reality here and affecting us, but in what capacity and what's behind that is the mystery. So definitely. So yeah, this is going to be a, a very, very interesting episode with probably a lot of information you've never heard of before. So let's go ahead and dive into Father Gabriella Amort. When Gabrielli was 18, he was drafted into World War II. The Pope arrived to welcome the crowd of 10,000, and a moment later, the shots rang out. Gabrielli was later awarded the War Cross for military valor. There are biblical references to fiery serpents whose venom burns on contact. Father Amort commanded Lucifer to leave, and at this point the man began to levitate three feet into the air. Then the room became freezing cold, and ice crystals formed on the windows and walls. And this would be his role for more than three decades. Chief Exorcist. 500,000 Italians see an exorcist every year. And yes, Satan is in the Vatican. Gabriele Mort was born May 1st, 1925 in Modena, Northern Italy. This region is most known for being the birthplace of the good old Ferrari and balsamic vinegar. Both are equally delicious. But long after that, it was also known as a central spot for witches and wizards between the 15th and 18th centuries. Most were just experts, though, in holistic herbal medicine, and their ceremonies were meant to ward off storms or bring a good harvest. But at the time, the medieval inquisition was out in full force, and some suspected of the occult and black magic were imprisoned or even put to death. This was old history by the time Gabriele was born, but this history of the occult might have shaped his upbringing. He grew up in a middle-class religious household and his father supported the political group, the People's Party. Many of their ideals were inspired by the Catholic faith, and this party later transformed into the Christian Democracy Party in the 1940s, which would become the largest party in the Italian parliament for decades. When Gabrielli was 18, he was drafted into World War II. At first, he fought under the fascist regime of Mussolini, but when German Nazis began turning Italy into a puppet state, he joined an anti-fascist resistance unit. And for two years, he fought against the fascist takeover, and he eventually reached the rank of battalion commander, and he did all this before the age of 20. Which is crazy to me, because most of us by the age of 20 are barely like, working a job and paying our rent yeah i'm sleeping in battling p.m yeah it's just crazy what people had to go through back in the day yeah during his work with the resistance gabriele was arrested several times by the fascist loyalists in italy but he was always able to escape when world war ii ended the fascists were purged and the resistance fighters were seen as heroes 
Gabrielli was later awarded the War Cross for military valor, and many years later he was awarded the Medal of Liberation on his deathbed. After the war, he moved to Rome to study law, and in 1947 he joined the Christian Democracy Party and became the Vice Secretary of the Youth Organization. And he was also deputy to Giulio Andriotti, the future Prime Minister of Italy. Except Gabriele didn't want to become a career politician like his peers. He was more interested in religion. Even before he was drafted into the war, he had always wanted to join the Catholic Church. So after getting his degree in law, he enrolled in seminary school. And in 1954, when he was 29 years old, he got a degree in theology and was ordained as a Catholic priest. During his first few years in the priesthood, Gabriele had regular duties in the church. At the time, there were only a few church-sanctioned exorcists in Italy, and exorcisms were becoming rare as time went on. The church had seen centuries of abuse and false claims of exorcisms, so the practice became more controversial. During his studies, he dove into divine miracles and the supernatural, and one of the subjects he was dedicated to was the Virgin Mary, and he was obsessed with Marian apparitions. A Marian apparition is a supernatural appearance of the Blessed Virgin Mary, or basically, in other words, this is just a Catholic ghost sighting, essentially. Um, some Catholics believe that Mary appears on earth with some sort of message. That's basically the only time you would see her. When Catholics see a Marian apparition, they believe she's essentially just affirming the viewer's prayers and they're being offered up to God. These appearances have been actually approved by bishops, and they have to be approved by a bishop to be an official Marian apparition. So far, 26 have been deemed authentic across the world, but these sightings are controversial among clergy members, and not every Catholic believes they're real. Interesting. So he's very much open to the supernatural and a lot of the things that were deemed controversial in the Catholic Church and wanting to explore that more. Especially early on, even you know when he first became a priest, he was already interested in these things. That's, that's, that's interesting because I feel like a lot of religious people are, don't believe in ghosts. They're like, if you ever see a ghost, it's not good. Yeah, yeah. It means something's trying to trick you into thinking that. So I bet you there's, there's controversy with some of these Marian apparitions. Is it actually, you know, Mary? Or is it a demon right. disguising itself as Mary right. to try to trick you? Yeah, you would think hyper-religious people would be more skeptical of that, but there's 26 official sightings, I guess. Wow. In 1959, Gabriele visited a site in Fatima, Portugal, and this site was supposedly famous for miracles performed by the Virgin Mary. On May 13, 1917, three peasant children in Fatima witnessed the ghost of a woman. She was a beautiful woman dressed in white. She told the children that world peace could be possible if they spread the word of God. They believed that this was the spirit of the Virgin Mary, and she visited them a few more times over the next three months. So when Gabriele visited in 1959, he obtained a statue of the Virgin Mary here, and he ordered it to be sent to every major Italian city. Meanwhile, he had kept in touch with his old friend he had met through the Christian Democracy Party a decade ago, Giulio Andriotti. Giulio had risen up the political ranks since the end of the war, and in 1959 he was the Minister of Defense. So Gabriele contacted him and got a military transport helicopter to haul the Virgin Mary statue 
through Italy. During this tour with the statue, Gabriele ended up in the convent of the famous Padre Pio, and he was known for manifesting spiritual gifts like healing, levitation, prophecy, and miracles. Supposedly, he rarely had to sleep or eat, and he loved fasting. Some say he once went 20 days only eating the Holy Eucharist and nothing else. Which, for those that don't know what that is, that is like Holy Communion. So, the body of God, bread, the blood of Christ, wine, or at my church, juice. No yeah. alcohol for me. Yeah. But if you go to any Catholic church, which I've I've taken communion at a Catholic church before, and it was legit wine. Yeah, no, that's and real everybody wine. drinks all the same. Yep, I was a little eight year old kid at my first communion. Yeah, real wine. Hey, you know what? Jesus drank wine, so yeah, can't be that bad. An old Catholic joke is uh, Jesus's first miracle is bringing alcohol to a party. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus was a sounded like a good time, man. Yeah. He's like. We only got water here. Damn, let's let's make some wine. All let's wine, get yeah. it going here. They say he could also read what was in people's hearts and could speak in multiple languages, and he had quote pleasant smelling wounds. He would even get wounds of stigmata across his body, which these were the wounds of Jesus when he died on the cross. I'm talking nail wounds through the wrists and feet, plus a stab wound through the ribs. So Gabriele knew this was the man to talk about the supernatural. Here at his convent, Padre Pio introduced Gabriele to the supernatural mysteries of Satan. He believed Satan could have a supernatural impact on modern humans, and he was also convinced that the devil had revealed himself disguised as a huge black dog. Maybe that's what the black shuck is after all. He told stories of when he would be alone at night praying in his convent room, and a hellhound would burst through his door and attack him. Padre Pio claimed that these battles with the hellhound could sometimes go on all night. Gabriele believed his stories, but he had never encountered any demons for himself. Still, his interest in the devil's supernatural powers began to grow. He later met with Father Candido Amantini, the Vatican's chief exorcist, and Gabriele learned as much as he could about Candido's experience with the devil. He was the only church-sanctioned exorcist in Rome for 36 years and he often saw 60 to 80 people a day. Some of his patients heard voices of demons in their head, and they'd suddenly become physically ill and violent. Others fell into trance states as they shook violently. Gabriele became fascinated with the process of exorcism. Candido's stories of possession soon convinced Gabriele that the devil still had a firm grasp on the natural world. On June 6, 1986, he was summoned for a meeting with Cardinal Paletti. This was the second highest ranking clergyman in Rome, and after a brief interview, the cardinal appointed Gabriele to the position of Candido's assistant. This made him the second in command to the chief exorcist in Rome. Candido had become ill earlier that year, so the church realized that they needed someone to take over that role eventually, and Candido wanted to pass down everything he knew. So Gabriele became his assistant when he was 61 years old. And over the next six years, Gabriele would learn everything from Candido when it came to the devil and his supernatural work. So possessions and exorcisms, uh, they go back to the oldest civilization that began writing down and documenting history. So basically we know possessions and exorcisms have existed for as long as human history has occurred. 
and that might even surpass that and go back even further, but obviously we don't have any documentation. They've appeared in writings from the Near East, India, and China, and they date back to the oldest recorded history, which was roughly 5,000 to 6,000 years ago. There are many different forms depending on the religion, and there are different procedures for each kind. But for the Catholic Church in this instance, possession, expelling demons, and talking with demons are mentioned several times throughout the Bible. And the New Testament alone has 20 references to Jesus casting out spirits or demons. Right, right. So even in the modern Catholic faith, these are still in mythology texts that we learn about today. It's also interesting, though, that it's in other religions as well. Yeah. That in other religions, they were dealing with demonic possession, maybe just using different names and, you know, for the procedures to exercise demons out of people. But the fact that it's across multiple cultures, multiple religions is a very interesting thing to me. And it's like, is it, and, and I mean, you could look at all the religious texts and you know, I mean, there's so many similarities across all of them. So you wonder, it's like, is it because everybody was actually experiencing these things and this is what was actually going on? Or is it people pulling from different places right. and yeah. kind of claiming it as their own? But the fact that it's mentioned across multiple you know, periods of history, multiple civilizations, that to me is very interesting. And, and I think it lends some credibility to the topic as a whole. I think it's also interesting that in the Bible, not only can humans become possessed, but animals can become possessed by demons as well. Right. That's a scary thought. Yeah. Imagine a demonically possessed lion or something like that. Like, <laughs> imagine encountering something like that out there. No thanks. In the yeah. <laughs> My God. I Lions mean, are already scary. Right. And just add demonic possession to it. <laughs> yeah. Today, the Catholic Church has strict definitions for what demonic possession is. They believe possession is when the devil, a demon, or an evil spirit take over a victim's physical control, mental state, and spiritual energies. These entities can physically affect the victims in several ways, like illness or pain. They can also force their victims to radically change their behavior. Most victims they saw were brought in by family members or friends, and in the cases they believed were honest possessions, they thought the devil or his demons had possessed the victims. But since these entities existed within God's domain, they believe they were all subject to God's will at the end of the day. And since ordained members of the church are seen as people set apart by God himself, a select few are allowed to perform exorcisms. Candido showed Gabriele the strict procedures of exorcisms. But one of the most complex parts of these exorcisms was figuring out if the victims were actually possessed. This process is called discernment. Most are brought in for rapid changes in behavior, violence, and self-harm. Some also hear voices or experience hallucinations, but the patients must also have clear physical symptoms. These include red eyes, dilated pupils, and a change in their neutral facial expressions. Some victims also see a massive increase in physical strength, sometimes to the point where they seem superhuman. Another big indicator that the patient is possessed is their reaction to prayer or just the presence of an exorcist. The patient might respond with aggression, their voice might change, getting hoarse and deeper in pitch. Their facial expressions might tighten before they scream insults or blasphemies against God. Some might even speak in tongues, including Latin, Ancient Greek, or Aramaic. When sacred objects like crucifixes or holy water appear, the victims might react with violence. Or even a picture of Jesus could set the patient off. 
So once Father Candido consulted with the patient, he would first refer the patients to medical professionals, as this was a crucial step for possessions. But it wasn't until 1999 when the Vatican made official guidelines for patients to be evaluated by doctors before exorcisms began. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church states in paragraph 1,673, quote, Exorcism is directed at the expulsion of demons or to the liberation from demonic possession through the spiritual authority which Jesus entrusted to his church. Quite a mouthful. Illness, especially psychological illness, is a very different matter. Treating this is the concern of medical science. Therefore, before an exorcism is performed, it is important to ascertain that one is dealing with the presence of the evil one and not an illness. So this is why we've covered, um, you remember Dr. Richard Gallagher, we covered him right. back in Lights Out episode 96. Wow. I want to go check that one out. That's an interesting one on exorcisms. But that's exactly why priests, exorcists specifically, need to reference their patients first to psychologists um, to basically say, to get the all clear that this is not a psychological condition this is something beyond that right well which is good that they at least do that and that's yeah. part of the guidelines because i mean if you think about it if you did get somebody who is perhaps schizophrenic or had some sort of mental disorder that was causing severe symptoms of hallucinating and hearing voices and things like that the last thing you'd want to do is then perform an exorcism which would be extremely traumatic for that person and potentially make their mental disorder worse right exactly. you would think Yep. So I'm glad that that's kind of been at the forefront of what exorcists do is they make sure that before they're performing the exorcism, which is interesting because I don't know that that's always been the case throughout history. And I believe with one of the exorcisms we're going to talk about today, and we'll actually show you a clip of, I don't know that that person actually, I think they got her medically cleared, but I don't know how much time a medical professional say a psychiatrist or a psycho or a psychologist was able to really like dive into that individual because obviously the individual needs to be open to being seen by somebody like that and really diving into some of the you know deeper causes of, of the behavior and what's going on in their mind before undergoing an exorcism right and and the discernment process like even if you think about it yeah it was it was kind of going out of style for x y and z reasons but yeah they didn't have this as an official vatican statement until 1999 so you can imagine before then i mean that was during his career right so he was performing exorcisms at a time when that wasn't necessarily the case. Luckily, the guy teaching him was like, yes, as a formality, we always send them over to psychiatrists. But it wasn't a, a technical rule. That was just his strict process that he had. And yeah, if you think about her, the, the case that we'll cover, yeah, it's, I don't know, because even in the actual quotes of the catechism, it just says you have to get them sent over to a doctor it doesn't say like how much they have to go how much paperwork they need when they come back for an exorcism like there's or even what kind of doctor to go see right yeah it's, it's not like, specific it seems to me like a lot of times they're going to just see a medical doctor 
who's kind of doing like the once over of like, oh, yeah, we'll run know, your blood work, check your vitals, yeah. make sure you're okay. And rather than a, it's not like they're going to see like somebody who studies the brain inside and out or, you know, has that psychiatry background who right. can really look at not so much the physical, but more the mental uh, ailments that are going on. Yeah. Because I think that's largely what's been done in the past is like they'll send you to a doctor and the doctor's like oh they seem sane and they seem fine and you know they're everything checks out medically and then they send them back to the exorcist but in reality they're not actually knowledgeable enough to diagnose some of those mental disorders i feel right like. so it's good it's a guideline and it's a rule but it's there's too many loopholes yeah and it's exactly. not specific enough right yeah exactly for modern exorcisms, doctors are crucial during the discernment process. This step shows how many of the patients are actually mentally ill. But once a doctor claimed the victims weren't suffering from the medical issues, they were brought back to Candido and Gabriele. Then they would have to get clearance from the local bishop and decide to go ahead with an exorcism. The exorcism would follow a strict Roman ritual. It had to be conducted by a priest in Latin or another Vatican-approved language. Every session had to be performed on sacred ground. Then the priests recited a strict sequence of prayers, psalms, and exhortations. Exhortations, which is an intimate call to fellow believers, and these are spoken out loud to the victim, hoping to expel the demons. At first, Gabriele strictly followed the diagnosis and exorcism process. In his earliest exorcisms with Candido, he saw how powerful these possessions could be. He watched as teenagers threw grown men around like they weighed nothing. He saw timid, reserved patients turn into rage-filled lunatics in the blink of an eye. He felt the room temperature instantly drop to freezing halfway through the sessions, and he heard patients scream in tongues before watching them spit on Father Candido. Through the years of sessions with Candido, Gabriele began to understand what he was truly up against. He began wearing his iconic purple stole, the vestment that priests drape over their shoulders. He would also place it around the victim's shoulders during the sessions, and he always carried around a vial of holy water and a medal of St. Benedict of Nursia. St. Benedict was known for his miracles and for defeating the devil several times. Apparently one time, Benedict even shattered a glass of poisoned wine by simply blessing it with the sign of the cross. Since Gabriele was getting closer to Satan, he believed that carrying around the sacred medal and a vial of holy water would protect him. Eventually, Gabriele realized that more than 90% of the cases that passed all the strict checks weren't actual possession cases. 90%. So he personally began developing a new screening method that went beyond the written rules. And this new method would only work while the exorcism was already underway. He believed that during the sessions, certain patients would close their eyes during certain prayers. Gabriele would then force them to open their eyes. And only during real possessions, the victim's eyes would turn white because their pupils were rolled up or down. Depending on which direction they were rolled, he believed that he could tell what was possessing them. So Gabriele would use his fingers to pull back the eyelids as far as he could. If the pupils were rolled completely upwards during these prayers, he believed they were possessed by demon scorpions. If they were rolled down, they were possessed by demon serpents. I don't know where exactly he drew that from, but that was his process. And, uh, Serpents are often mentioned in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. They're usually used to identify the 
devil or act as some sort of symbol of evil and chaos. Well, if you think about the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, yep, serpent in the Garden of Eden, tempting yeah. Adam and Eve. The first one Who was right? that. Yeah, exactly. So that's like a very uh, popular instance of in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, the serpent tempting Adam and Eve. Um, and then they were eventually cast out of the Garden of Eden because he successfully tempted them, right? Basically, yeah. they fucked over humanity. Yeah, thanks, guys. We could be living in a totally different world if <laughs> they hadn't work. ate that damn apple, man. <laughs> there are biblical references to fiery serpents whose venom burns on contact, but just like possessions, these serpents in mythology date back to Mesopotamia. So the early, again, yeah. the earliest instance of you know civilization, and they're even in one of the oldest stories ever uncovered in written form, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which came out of Mesopotamia. In the story, a serpent steals Gilgamesh's power of immortality. And also the uh, ancient Egyptians, Canaanites, Babylonians have all used serpents as symbols and in some way, usually in the negative context. As for scorpion demons, though, this one's a bit more niche i yeah. have you ever even heard of scorpion demons i i hadn't really no not really but i can kind of see i mean have you ever seen a scorpion those things look evil <laughs> they, shit, they do <laughs> like, they do if there was another evil uh creature out there besides a serpent i think a scorpion's scorpion. right up there man. <laughs> yeah I mean, for sure it's not like we've anybody's ever looked at a scorpion like oh that's a cute scorpion that's great let me have it as a pet yeah no uh, turns out they're also from Mesopotamian mythology. So I, I am curious. I couldn't find out because I, I obviously don't know what Gabriele was studying, but it seems like a lot of his studies went way back to some of the earliest mythologies. Because if he's talking about scorpion demons, they're really only referenced in very, very old texts. Well, I think it's interesting that it, scorpions comes up because if you think about where these uh, civilizations were, we're talking... Uh, modern day Middle East. So we're talking desert regions for the most part, drier regions where I'm sure scorpions are very abundant. So True, it yeah. would you know, it makes sense that scorpions show up in some of these ancient texts over and over again, you know, in the in not necessarily in the negative context, but it would make sense that I mean, what does a scorpion do? it just stings you, you know what yeah. I mean? So it makes sense that they might use this type of creature as a representation of evil because there is no, you know, positive quality when it comes to the scorpion human relationship, yeah. right? No, Other, I mean, you don't want to step on them. You don't want them crawling around where you sleep. So I would imagine that it was always a, just because of the nature of the creature. The location that, too. The location. That's a great point. I never even thought of that because it's like, I'm from the Midwest. So I don't know what, I don't even, we don't even have something like that. I mean, maybe a little black bear or something, but yeah, I, uh, that makes a lot of sense that it's geographical too. It's a big part of it. That's what I think at least. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but that's just kind of what I take away from that. Yeah. It's gotta I mean, be from that region. Cause if you look at, I mean, if you look at the Bible as a whole and the history of the Bible, the region, you know, the regions it's talking about is modern day Middle East. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's not. You know, the Bible doesn't take place in North America or right. anything like that. It's all this region of the well, world. Maybe so. the Mormon Bible does. But. True, true. <laughs> yeah. <very> true. <laughs> but yeah, so scorpion demons, uh, mostly from Mesopotamian mythology, they're similar to chimeras, which we, you know, we recently talked about. They're essentially scorpion men 
humanoids, men's that okay. have like usually they have the body of a scorpion, torso and head of a man. Like, but they got arms. that mean tail. They got yeah, exactly. They got the the pincer. What? No, it's not a pincer. What is it? It's just a needle. It, yeah, tail? it's like yeah. A, a stinger on it, basically. Yeah. But then they do have their pinchers too. Right. It's a hot combo, right? There. Really That's is. why they're so scary. scary. Um, they're called, and bear with me, they're called Akrabu Amelu. Akrabu Amelu. Akrabu Amelu. Yeah. Funny enough, uh, if you've ever seen, you, do you remember the movie The Scorpion King? Oh, yeah. With Dwayne yeah. The Rock Johnson. <laughs> that's that's what he was, turns out. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So we do have references to scorpion demons in even in American culture, I, if you want to call that culture. Um, these creatures guarded the gates of the sun god and they could warn people of danger beyond the horizon, but they would also terrorize people and one glance from a scorpion man could potentially kill you. So that's the scorpion demon that deadly. Yeah. That Gabriella is. It really makes sense because it seems like Gabriella was very, very well researched and very knowledgeable and it would make sense that he, he would take other religions and other beliefs from different cultures into account and perhaps he even did exorcisms on other people of other faiths for all we know i mean i have no idea but he just seems like the most knowledgeable individual when it came to demonic possession so it makes sense that he would pull from all places that he could true and he really took this seriously i mean he was very i mean he just soaked up this information and you have to remember too, I mean, he was into the supernatural and the mysteries surrounding it from a young, young age. So, I mean, I can't even imagine the number of books this guy read. Right. It was yeah. probably an absurd amount to pull all this information to become the individual that he did. So maybe that's where, you know, the scorpion demons comes from. But after learning from his mentor over the years, Gabriele was finally ready to perform solo exorcisms. One day, Father Candido was too sick to perform a session, so Gabriele had to take the lead. His first exorcism was a young 14-year-old girl who had participated in a satanic ritual with her friends. Her parents quickly brought her in when they noticed symptoms of possession. And only after one easy session, Father Amort was able to drive out the demon. From this first solo experience, he learned that timing was crucial, and he believed that if the signs of possession were caught fast enough, the demons wouldn't have time to take root or burrow inside the victim. But this was rare because most of their patients were only taken to Candido and Gabriele after suffering for months. So they pressured themselves to perform the exorcisms as fast as they could. And now that Candido was getting sicker, Gabriele had to take the lead. With each session, he grew more confident. After years of training Gabriele, Father Candido died in 1992. So Gabriele became his successor as the Vatican's chief exorcist, and this would be his role for more than three decades. Chief exorcist. Soon he was seeing about 300 cases a year, and this ended up being about 70,000 exorcism sessions throughout his entire career. He also worked every Easter, Christmas, and even on his birthday. By now he had also figured out the three key requirements for a good exorcist. Strong faith, purity through prayer, and fasting. Through his work, he had hundreds of thousands of consultations. 
For every 100 people he saw, he said about only one or two were actually possessed. Sometimes the exorcism sessions didn't work, so the patients were sent back to psychiatric and medical care. Others just needed the reinforcement in their faith. Throughout his career, he had 23 different offices where he performed exorcisms, and neighbors often complained about the screaming and the door slamming, day and night. Gabriele believed that about 90% of his possession cases were caused by the patient's exposure to a curse, a spell, or a satanic ritual. He also realized that most people who identified as witches, wizards, or satanists, were mostly harmless. But he still believed a small minority had true powers, and he saw these demonic energies with his own eyes. He described one of his patients in 1997 as a quote-unquote simple man. He was young and slim, and he came to the session with his priest and another person who acted as a translator. At first, Gabriele didn't understand why the man needed a translator, but the man's priest explained that the man spoke English instead of Italian when he was under demonic possession. When the ritual began, the young man was silent. He lied down like nothing was affecting him. Even when Gabriele invoked the help of the Lord, the man didn't respond. But when he specifically asked for the help of Jesus Christ, the man responded. He looked at Gabriele in the eyes, and foam began pouring out of his mouth. Then he began yelling in English. He cursed Gabriele and threatened him. He also began spitting on him, and he tried to physically attack him. But his assistants held the man down and restrained him. Once Father and Mark got to the part in the prayer where he began commanding the demon, the man relaxed for a moment. Then his trance returned, and he began to scream and howl as more drool and foam came out of his mouth. Father Amort continued on with the rite of liberation. He then commanded the demon to reveal himself. He said, Unclean spirit, whoever you are, and all your companions who possess the servant of God, I command you, tell me your name, the day and the hour of your damnation. He didn't expect a response because he usually never got one, but this time the man responded in English. He said, I am Lucifer. Gabriele believed that Satan was in the room with him at that moment. He continued on with the prayer, and the man continued to shriek. Eventually, his eyes rolled back into his head and his back arched into the air. He stayed in this position for about 15 minutes. Then the room became freezing cold and ice crystals formed on the windows and walls. Father Amort commanded Lucifer to leave, and at this point, the man began to levitate three feet into the air. Father Amort would only see this happen two other times in his entire career. The other time was a six-year-old boy who levitated four inches above the ground for five minutes. Gabriele believed that demons did this just to show off. The man stayed in the air for several minutes before falling back into his chair, and then the voice of Satan came out of him. The voice told Father Amort the exact day and hour that he would leave the body of the man. After the session ended, the man returned each week, but not much had changed. But during their last session, the young man seemed very calm and reserved. He even began praying along with Father Amort during the prayers of liberation. Father Amort could sense that the possession was over. He then asked the man how he knew that Lucifer had left him. The man said that on the day and the hour the devil had said he would leave, the man began to howl. And the more he howled, the more he felt something leave his body. He felt light and knew. During another exorcism, his patient was a possessed 11-year-old boy. Father Amort began his session, 
like he always had. But during the prayers, the boy became so hostile, he had to be held down by four men. The possession had given the boy superhuman strength. He wrestled the men off and threw a few across the room. Gabriele had seen superhuman strength like this before. One time he was even kicked by a patient, and the kick was so strong it actually broke his leg, and he ended up in a leg cast for a month. Sometimes priests call this level of strength Samsonism. It's one of the key features in possessions. And uh, Samson, if you didn't know, was a biblical character in the book of Judges. He's also considered an Israelite version of Gilgamesh or Hercules. And obviously Hercules is known for his strength, right? But in the book of Judges, Samson was known for his incredible strength. He slayed a lion with only his hands. Uh, He beat an entire army of Philistines using only a donkey jawbone. (laughs) That's pretty badass. Yeah, right. But the catch was he only had his superhuman strength as long as he had his hair. Hair long. Yeah. Yeah. Which you probably heard the joke told time and again when I had long hair and cut it. You know, people are like, oh, Samson lost his strength. Yeah. Everyone (laughs) makes that joke, right? Um, So that's where it comes from, Book Book of Judges. He was later betrayed by a woman, Delilah, who was sent by the Philistines to seduce him. And in the middle of the night, she ordered a servant to cut off his hair. The Philistines then captured him, gouged out his eyes, and forced him to grind grain in a mill in Gaza. Meanwhile, he slowly grew back his hair, and one day the Philistines brought him to one of their temples. Here, Samson prayed to God, returning his strength to him. He then pulled down the massive support columns inside the temple, possibly made of like marble or something really heavy. He killed all of the Philistines inside along with himself. So this is basically how he became an iconic character from the Bible, known for his strength. And it makes sense that exorcisms use this name, this Samsonism, to reference this just crazy, incredible strength. Um, You've actually probably heard of people draw parallels between this kind of a unrealistic strength too but we've heard it in day-to-day news stories and whatnot people lifting cars suvs and even helicopters to like save others lives or yeah. the mother you know lifting the boulder to save her child one lady in quebec fought off a polar bear to save children back in 2006 what that's yeah. crazy yeah man. fought off a polar bear right so people think that it's this fight or flight response and just a surge of adrenaline that just you just get this strength that comes out of absolutely nowhere but in religious circles uh, they think that this strength can sometimes come from certain trances and like a trance Mm. being during a during a possession you know it's common that people fall into these trances so not actually sure is there adrenaline pumping through them or what interesting but um even in in tibetan buddhism there's the Nichung Oracle for the Dalai Lama. His Oracle, the Nichung Oracle, traditionally has to wear this elaborate costume for certain ceremonies. It's made of different colors, designs. It also has a big mirror on the front of polished steel. Four flags, three victory banners are all attached to this big harness. They also added an iron headdress that weighed 70 to 80 pounds and the entire costume weighed about 150 pounds. And this oracle, you know, the oracles 
they're Buddhist monks. These aren't bodybuilders. They're kind of small men. So the Dalai Lama once said that he believed the only way his oracles had the strength to walk around in these costumes were because they were in spiritual trances. Mm. And so to wrap that back around to exorcisms, it's kind of the same thing, these spiritual trances that people get into to give them this Samson Accessing the strength from somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So it's not, it's not totally outside the realm of reality because we've seen people whip out strength right uh, before but yeah in the, in religious circles it has something to do with this trance being in a trance state so it's almost like being in a meditative state where you're able to access whether it's supernatural power or physical power within yourself that's kind of unlocked in a way yeah but it's it's also interesting how we're seeing this carried over to buddhism from yeah. catholicism too right you know it's kind of the same same sort of belief just explain differently um and access maybe slightly differently but in the end it's still referencing a supernatural strength that is accessed during this trance-like or meditative state which is very interesting to me so knowing that these patients could have incredible strength father amort wasn't afraid to use several men and ropes to restrain his patients to their beds or chairs but even when they were restrained he often had to deal with another problem, bodily fluids. His patients often spit at him while they were restrained. In one case, Father Amort covered the patient's mouth because they were spitting so much. Foam and spit poured out from under his hand, but he noticed something else between the spit and foam. When he pulled back his hand, he noticed a clump of small metal nails mixed into the spit. He later claimed that this was a tactic that demons used to hurt and scare their victims. And this wasn't the only time it happened. In several other cases, the patients had slowly regurgitated large metal spikes or shards of glass, somewhere as large as an adult finger. Think about that for a moment. How long that is. Others spit up keys, chains, rose petals, and plastic figurines. One time a patient even vomited up an entire radio, one piece at a time. And Father Amort kept some of these objects as mementos. The more exorcisms he performed, the less he was shocked by his patient's behaviors, and he got more comfortable with the process. And he'd always reminded himself that timing was key. If he didn't get to it early, these exorcisms could last months or even years. One of his patients was a woman named Antonella from Naples, and she drove to Rome with her husband for her exorcism sessions with Father Amort. She'd end up spending more than 17 years going to these sessions, and they blamed it on one of their friends who was a devil worshiper. They claimed that her friend was jealous of her having two children, so she cursed her. They noticed something was wrong when Antonella began having violent fits after receiving the Eucharist at Mass. Then she would fall into trances and begin speaking in Aramaic and German, which were languages she didn't know. Sometimes during their sessions, it would take up to three grown men to hold her down. After four years, her fits of rage and violence got better, and the sessions seemed to be helping. And she'd become familiar with Gabriella's exorcism room. Many of his offices were laid out the same throughout his career. It was basically a white-tiled kitchen, decorated with images of Jesus and the Virgin Mary. One bed sat in the corner, tied with restraining ropes. Across the room was an armchair with a Bible and prayer books. There was also a large statue of Mary that sat in the corner of the room. For each session, he would always wear his black cassock 
with a purple stole draped over his shoulders. Father Mort would then have his three assistants hold her down and he would begin chanting in Latin. During one session, Antonella began choking and coughing up phlegm. She moaned and rocked back and forth. When Father Mort tried to get the demon to say its name, it refused. But when he asked how many there were, the voice inside Antonella said, We are five. Father Mort then made the sign of the cross on her forehead. He continued the prayers and blessings for several more minutes, and Antonella finally calmed down. Ten minutes later, she came back around like everything was a dream. After the session, Father Mort called that a light one. He had seen much more intensity during the 17 years of treating her. But during his career, the movie The Exorcist was always hanging over him. As it turned out, the director, William Friedkin, had never actually seen an exorcism performed before making the movie. But he had used the reverend as a technical advisor, and they based the movie on the real case of Ronald Hunkler in 1949. Father Mort appreciated the movie for raising awareness about possession, exorcism, and the devil. But he pointed out that the rituals in the movie weren't accurate. And obviously the victim's symptoms in the movie were exaggerated. He had never seen someone's head spin around. But he did admit that one of his patients had crawled on the walls like a spider. I don't know which one's more scary. And two of his patients had levitated during their possession. So the movie wasn't completely inaccurate. Many also wondered if possessed patients had dual voices like in the movie. Could Satan use the victim as a puppet for his own voice? Father Mort believed that Satan and his demons never liked talking, and they didn't want to be easily identified. But Father Mort admitted that if the demon was discovered, sometimes they would talk for a short time. It was mostly vulgar language, curses, or abuse, and the possessors have rarely identified themselves, but if they ever did, they usually claim to be Satan. But sometimes, several demons can claim one victim at the same time, so multiple voices can be heard, but it's extremely rare. Father Mort didn't enjoy horror movies or books, and he believed they mostly had a negative influence on people's lives, and he also had some strange personal beliefs. He thought that ordinary things could open the doors to the evil one, and he also believed that some of the history's most evil figures were actually possessed. Since he served in World War II, he also saw the devil during the war. He once claimed, quote, Hitler and Stalin were possessed. How can I know? Because they killed millions of people. Unfortunately, an exorcism on them would not have been enough, since they were convinced of what they were doing. We cannot say that it was a possession in the strict sense of the word, but rather a total and voluntary acceptance of the devil's suggestions. Some argued that he had become paranoid over the years, but later when he asked if he was scared of Satan, he said, absolutely not. It is him who is afraid of me. That's pretty badass if you ask me. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Throughout his career, he liked using the press to raise awareness of exorcisms. Today, it's been seen by many as an outdated practice, and Father Amor often struggled with high-ranking church officials. He accused them of trying to replace the Roman ritual of exorcism with less effective ones, and they also tried to ban diagnostic exorcisms. This was how Father Amor identified the demons by looking at the patient's eyes. In 2012, he stopped both changes from happening. He also struggled with previous popes ignoring exorcism rituals. But in 2014, Pope Francis officially recognized the International Association of Exorcists. And Father Amort founded this group in 1990 and was president for 10 years. 
Today, it's made up of 250 priests across 30 countries that use exorcisms to cast out demons. He believed every Catholic diocese in the world should have at least one exorcist. And he also thought that bishops who didn't appoint an exorcist in the church were committing a mortal sin. Pope Francis has also been vocal about the devil and his influence, and he was even seen in 2013 placing his hands on the head of a man who was supposedly possessed by four demons. People nearby overheard the Pope saying a prayer of liberation from Satan, and since then, Father Amort had a much higher opinion of Francis. Even though he won many of his political battles, he still had problems with the church, and he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. Father Amort often saw clients continuously throughout the day. Sometimes he was still dressed in his pajamas, and the press would often come and interview him where he worked. He loved talking to the press, and he loved reminding people that the devil still had significant power in the modern world. In 2010, he was asked if the devil had the ability to attack the Vatican City, and he said that Satan already had. He believed the devil invaded when Pope John Paul II was shot in 1981. Here's a little news footage from when that happened. Peter Askew, a South African tourist, had spent the day filming the sights of Rome. He arrived in St. Peter's Square in the afternoon for John Paul's weekly audience. The Pope arrived to welcome the crowd of 10,000. After getting some preliminary shots, Askew moved into position for a closer view. The jeep carrying John Paul drew to within 18 inches of Askew, and the Pope extended his hand to the cameraman. Askew stopped filming to receive the blessing, and a moment later, the shots rang out. He immediately resumed filming to capture these extraordinary pictures. Although brief, the film confirms eyewitness reports that John Paul remained amazingly calm after being wounded. Pope John Paul has said he forgives Mahat al-Aqqa, the man accused of shooting him. The young Turk remains something of a mystery. Described as a right-wing extremist by Turkish authorities, he's told Italian police he is a pro-Palestine communist comrade. There is also evidence he is linked with Muslim fanatics. A forged passport found in his hotel room explains how he was able to get into Italy despite previous public threats against the Pope. Police are still trying to find out how he obtained the Browning semi-automatic found on him when he was arrested. Father Amore also mentioned that Satan invaded again when a woman dragged Pope Benedict down to the ground on Christmas Eve 2009. He once said, quote, Today Satan rules the world. The masses no longer believe in God. And yes, Satan is in the Vatican. It was impossible to prove, but he could see the devil's presence. There were cardinals who didn't believe in Jesus and bishops who were linked to Satan. He also believed the pedophilia scandal in the Catholic Church was a clear sign that the devil was at work. By the time of his 2010 interview, this had become a worldwide scandal. Here's a news clip of John Paul II being aware of the sex abuse scandal. Tonight, an explosive Vatican report revealing Pope John Paul II knew about extensive sexual abuse allegations regarding adults and minors against Theodore McCarrick, but still promoted him to Archbishop and then Cardinal. McCarrick, at one time one of the most powerful Catholics in America, directed millions of dollars to the church, even as allegations and rumours surfaced for decades. The 400-page report lays most of the blame on John Paul II, now a saint whose friendship with McCarrick dated back to the 1970s. 
In 2000, he appointed McCarrick to the helm of the church in Washington, D.C., despite knowing of reports that he'd shared a bed with seminarians at a beach house. The report concludes that Pope John Paul II ultimately chose to believe McCarrick's denial of those allegations. James Grind claims McCarrick abused him for two decades, starting as a child in the 1960s. While the report itself is powerful, the abuse to me was incredibly heinous and it hurts forever. McCarrick was defrocked by Pope Francis last year amid more allegations. That's a huge scandal. That was actually one of the reasons I left the Catholic Church. Was, it's still a problem to this day. They have not figured out. Yeah, they haven't rooted it all out, that's for sure. Yeah. Still goes on at all levels too, which is crazy, all the way up to the, the Vatican, but all the way down to just the Catholic Church around the corner. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's scary. And that's a I mean that's a whole other issue that maybe we can dive into one day a little bit more, but yeah, I mean I think Father Mort's right. The devil definitely made his way deep within the Catholic Church. Absolutely, yeah. Father Mort believed that even the highest-ranking cardinals and bishops could be tempted by Satan. It was clear that he was never afraid to go after the Vatican. In 2012, Father Amort was 85 years old when he claimed that Emanuela Orlandi was kidnapped by a member of the Vatican police for sex parties. She disappeared on June 22, 1983 when she was only 15 and she was never seen again. He claimed that the girl was murdered and officials from a foreign embassy were involved. A close friend of Emanuela later said that she was molested by someone close to the Pope it was John Paul II at the time. The case has never been solved, but the Vatican reopened the case in January 2023. Some of Gabriella's peers thought that this was ridiculous for going against the Vatican. Others thought that the Vatican needed someone like him, but he had gotten paranoid. Through his long career, he believed almost everything could be a vessel for Satan. He even believed yoga was a satanic practice because it stemmed from Eastern religions that believed in reincarnation. He believed that getting a tattoo was an involuntary satanic act, since the body is, of course, the temple of God. And maybe this is where my parents got it from, but he believed that the Harry Potter franchise encouraged kids to believe in the powers of black magic. Which, again, this was a very popular view at the time for fundamentalist Christians. But in 2003, the Vatican even publicly stated that there was nothing wrong with the Harry Potter series. And Pope John Paul II approved of the books. But a small minority of Catholics agreed with Gabriele. Besides his controversial press interviews, he also stayed in the spotlight by releasing over 20 books throughout his career. In his memoirs, he explained how easily a person can end up under the control of the evil one. He said in some nightclubs, a boy or a girl goes there and smokes tobacco. Then they move on to hard drugs, then to sex, and then they join a satanic group. Quite the jump there. <laughs> in one chapter, he told the story of a counselor in Eastern Healing. Who admired Elvis Presley. And Father Mort saw this as idolatry. He believed that they were attracted to a demon that was inside of Elvis, and this opened up a doorway to the devil. In another story, he talked about an occultist mother-in-law who confirmed that black magic was real. She had placed a curse on her daughter's marriage. According to the son-in-law, the couple had months of bad luck, and sometimes the couple's bed would violently shake in the middle of the night. Was it from the demons, or... <laughs> Yeah, from getting else. on. Huh? Yeah. 
Father of Mort's countless press statements and the dozens of books he wrote eventually made him one of the most famous exorcists in human history, even if that meant his peers disagreed with him. His critics would call him a con man and a charlatan. But even some of his most critical peers also had a certain level of respect for him. They realized that Father Mort had the courage to go where most of them feared. I want to play a clip from the documentary we talked about earlier. It's called Father Mort and the Devil. And in the film, William Friedkin interviews Archbishop Robert Barron. And he had this to say about Father Amor. Speaking to the devil, I mean, heck, I, people like Father Amor maybe could do that. I would never dare to do it. I'm, I'm not there spiritually. You know, I think that's a very dangerous thing. I'm and sure again, it you, what did you say? I wouldn't do it. I'd be you afraid to what? speak to the speak to the devil. I mean, if I as we an exorcist. I don't think I'm, I'd be any good at it. I wouldn't want to do it. And uh, Why not? I think it's dangerous ground. I think I'd be really, it's, really holy. It's in the scriptures. I know, but Jesus it's doing Jesus it. Jesus exercised demons. Yeah, absolutely. But that's why the church is really careful to choose very holy people. And dominate and you're not? Movies. Hey, I, would, I don't think I'm ready for that. Uh, I'd be afraid. It's clear that Father Amort's main goal is to always remind the world that the devil existed. He once said, the devil is pure spirit, invincible, and he is shown with the painful blasphemies coming from the person which he possesses. He can stay hidden, he can speak different languages, he can transform himself. Over the decades, he acted as the Vatican's chief exorcist. Father Mort had become a popular Catholic media figure, and he was eventually approached by the director, William Friedkin, from The Exorcist. William joined Father Amort for one of his exorcism sessions in 2015, and this was when he began filming a documentary called The Devil and Father Amort that would come out two years later. So just a heads up, all the names of the patients and the family members going forward are pseudonyms. The story began with a patient named Mary, who was in her 30s. She had been depressed for years, and one day she was found by her brother Robert convulsing on the floor. Other times he found her howling in the bedroom and crawling on the walls and her behavior worsened on religious holidays. She went through four sessions with Father Amort, and eventually she was cured. Over time, her brother Robert became an assistant to Father Amort. One day when Robert was at church, he met a woman named Rose. He knows she looked distressed, so he approached her to try and help. When she told him what was wrong, he took her to see Father Amort for a consultation. It didn't take long before they found out that Rose's brother and his girlfriend were members of a satanic cult. And after performing a satanic ritual, this might have opened up Rosa to possession. So Father Amort took her through the procedures to try and figure out what was wrong. She had seen doctors before, but she claimed they were useless. And once he determined she was possessed, he started his exorcism sessions in August 2015. By the ninth session in May 2016, Father Amort finally allowed William Friedkin to film this exorcism with Rosa. When the prayers began, Father Amort started the session like he did always. He draped his purple stole over his and Rosa's shoulders, and then he thumbed his nose at the devil to taunt him, like a little kid on the playground. Love this. He's literally like, yeah, you can see he's him. Like, like, he's yeah, like, yeah. Nana, nana, boo. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I'm sure that gets the devil real pissed. <laughs> Surrounding him during the session were four other priests and assistant Rosa's boyfriend and several of Rosa's family members. All of them prayed the Lord's Prayer in a Hail Mary. Then Father Amort invoked Saint Joseph, Padre Pio, 
Father Candido, and the Blessed Virgin. At first, Rosa was calm, but as the session went on, her eyes rolled back into her head and she fell into a trance. Father Amart performed the ritual all in Latin. When he said, I exercise, O God, this unclean spirit, she got more agitated and her body began throbbing. Two other men had to hold her down, and then he commanded, Set yourself free. This was when she lost consciousness for a moment. When Father Amort said, Be afraid of Satan and the enemies of faith, Rosa thrashed violently in her chair. After he said, Let her go, O God Almighty, Rosa responded in Latin, screaming the word, Never. Supposedly, Rosa had never studied Latin, and as far as they knew, she only spoke Italian, but she began screaming the word louder and louder. By now, some noticed a low buzz could be heard in the room between her screams like a swarm of bees. When Father Amort asked how many demons were inside her, she responded, 80 legions. Now the room had grown cold, but everyone inside had beads of sweat on their foreheads. Rosa's session went on for almost an hour, and by the end, Father Amort ended it with the sign of the cross. Rosa's trance faded away, and she ended up with a smile on her face. And crazy enough, she had no memory of what had happened. So now that you understand what's being said, I'm going to go ahead and play kind of a compilation of this session for you from the documentary, because I think hearing it and seeing it take place is a lot better than me trying to just explain it in words. Let's go ahead and play that. Um, I know Danny and I, we think that the audio is doctored, the, her voice when it goes kind of like in this, you hear it like change. Kinda, yeah. We thought it, we thought, cause then Danny even showed me the other day how he was taking my voice from an old episode and he Make slapped you sound demon possessed. Yeah. 
So maybe we should Take do that. Two versions: pitch one, pitch one low, pitch one high. I was going to say, it does sound it does sound a little doctored. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I can't really remember exactly. But he was getting just her voice doctored, which there's other sound going on, and we saw how he's recording this, and it's not like he's like got individual mic, right? mics. The mics are picking up all the sound in the room, so. To doctor that would be very, very difficult. Take a lot of time for sure. I don't even know if that would even be possible because you're not just getting her her vocals by itself. So everything in the room would be pitched up or down. Yeah. Um, from you know, I'm no audio engineer, but I I do podcasts for a living and I know enough that it'd be pretty difficult to just with his equipment just <laughs> to, to be get able to like one get voice one out of voice. There. I agree. I mean, it sounds like I've heard that voice before, right? whether it be, I don't know if it was in movies or if it was like in other exorcism clips that I've seen, but I don't know. I don't know that it's actually doctored or not. I mean, it, it would be incredibly difficult, I think, but I don't, I don't think it would be impossible, but I, the one mic, if, if it is just one mic in that room and he's just taking her voice, that would be, yeah, that would be nuts. I kind of just want, for the sake of fun, I kind of want Danny to manipulate my voice a little bit, just just for shits, just for the listeners, um, just to hear what it sounds like. Can we replicate that? Right. Yeah. That's not about um, it. Yeah. Yeah. So, which, what's my line? Give me my line. Um, Somebody help me! I need help. Jesus Christ! He's inside of me. Wow, that was intense. That was <laughs> wow. I, I thought you were actually possessed there for a moment. <laughs> so, <laughs> my God, that was good. That was really good. It was the inside of me part that got me inside of me. <laughs> I started looking at you and thinking that your mouth was going to open and something was going to crawl out of your <laughs> yeah. mouth, like. So it could be doctored, it could not be. I don't know. Any of you out there, let us know if you're if you're watching this right now. What do you think? I think based on what I know and his equipment, I think it'd be very difficult. But I, like you said, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, he is a Hollywood director, so I'm sure he's got access to right. the top of the line equipment and producers to help out with that for sure. So it's very possible because it, it it almost doesn't sound natural at all. It sounds very almost like an effect put on a, a microphone or something. Yeah. So it's possible. But with that said, I hope that doesn't undercut what's actually yeah, happening. Yeah. Cause I think there is something genuine happening here. Um, maybe they just kind of exaggerated the voice to try to make it even more, you know, for the film to make it more stand yeah. out more, but the, her behavior in it is very alarming, right? She's convulsing and she, her eyes are clearly rolled back in her head and she's, seemingly in the trance yeah throughout most of it and i can imagine maybe one of the producers took a look at one of the first cuts of the movie and they're like can we make this a little more because this is really the pinnacle of the movie was this yeah. exorcism right so maybe it was somebody else's call if it is if it is even doctored maybe it was just some producer's call to make it more interesting or something like that so this first part goes on for quite a while and then you know she's kind of out of the trance smiling 
But then Father Amore and one of the priests led her to a corner where they gave her a private blessing, and she suddenly began to rage and scream again, and then two men had to restrain her. One held her around the neck and the other held her legs. She again eventually returned to normal and the mood inside the room shifted. After a few moments pass, everyone then suddenly began singing happy birthday to Father Amort in Italian because it was May 1st and it was his 91st birthday. So at 91 years old, this guy's out here battling the devil. I mean, doesn't give much more badass than that. that honestly. He's a dedicated man. Seriously. So rather than take the day off on his birthday, he decided, you know what? I got to help this woman. And that's what he did. When William later asked Rosa how she was, she said she could feel the devil suffering inside of her, and it felt like she was becoming free. Father Mort later told William that Rosa's case was unique compared to others he had seen. In an earlier session, Rosa had apparently told Father Mort a list of all of his sins, but these were things only Father Mort and his confessor knew. This was another sign of a true possession, knowing things that were impossible to know. When the sessions were supposed to continue, Rosa and her family kept rescheduling, and they later threatened William with a lawsuit, as they believed that William's footage would spread Satan's work, and they accused him of not caring what effects it would have on Rosa. It escalated to the point that Rosa's boyfriend said that they would kill William and his entire family. After this last meeting, the family cut off Father Amort and William completely. Later, William showed the video footage of the exorcism to neurosurgeons and psychiatrists to get their take. Dr. Neil Martin, the chief of neurosurgery at the UCLA Medical Center, said this. But there's an amazing force. It's interesting to see that she is not separated from the environment. She's not in a catatonic state. She's responding to the priest. It didn't appear to be hallucinations. She appeared to be engaged in the process, but resisting. Another neurosurgeon, Dr. Itzhak Fried, said this. I, I only look at it as a behavioral phenomenon. If I were then a Catholic priest, okay, or a Jewish rabbi, I may have different explanations. Can I characterize it? Maybe. Can I know how to treat it? No. So something is happening to her, it's clear. But maybe she puts into it the religious context in which she grew up. Neither of the surgeons admitted that the woman was possessed by Satan, but they both admitted that they couldn't cure her with neurosurgery. Michael B. First, a professor of clinical psychiatry, said it fit into the pattern that we call disassociative trance and possession disorder, and exorcism as a therapeutic technique could work. Another psychiatrist, Jeffrey Lieberman, director of the New York State Psychiatric Institute, said he wasn't convinced there was something supernatural going on, but it wasn't fake. He had even had a strange experience of his own. He said he never believed in ghosts or demonic possession, but one experience made him second-guess his beliefs. He once treated a young girl in her 20s from a Catholic family in Brooklyn. She was referred to Jeffrey with schizophrenia, and she had symptoms that didn't respond to any treatment. Some of his patients didn't respond well to treatment, but it was extremely rare to see a case where the patient responded to nothing. So he started doing family therapy sessions, and suddenly, strange things started happening. He began having accidents and hearing things that weren't there. One night, he went to see his patient, and after their meeting, he headed home. As he drove towards his house, he noticed a strange blue light inside. Then he developed intense migraines. So he called one of his colleagues and explained what was going on, but neither of them had an answer. The patient's family had mentioned she might have been possessed. 
He didn't believe it at first, but once he started experiencing the strange phenomena, he began to freak out. He started believing that the patient was actually possessed. And since the demon might have seen him as the enemy, it began attacking him too. In the end, many of the psychiatrists that were shown the video of Rosa agreed that there were certain things they couldn't explain, and they left it at that. Since Rosa's relationship with Father and Mort was now over, she later reached out to other exorcists to continue her sessions. Meanwhile, Father and Mort's health took a downturn. He had trouble breathing in July 2016 and was later diagnosed with a pulmonary condition and pneumonia. In September 2016, he was hospitalized. When friends came to visit, they noticed he was still in good spirits. When they began crying, he would remove his oxygen mask and blow raspberries at them. But Father Amort eventually passed away on September 16, 2016 from complications from pneumonia. He was 91 years old. Before he died, he told one of his assistants, When I get to the good place, I will continue to fight the devil even harder. During one of Rosa's later sessions with a different priest in Vinafro, he tried to invoke the spirit of Father Amort to help in the exorcism. But when the priest said his name, Rosa writhed in pain and screamed, Don't! Don't call him! It wasn't clear if it was Rosa's voice or the voice of the demon who feared Father Amort. And some believe that his spirit is still here with us, casting out demons in the natural world. Today, Father Amort is seen as the priest who spearheaded modern exorcisms, He's gotten the nickname, the Vatican Exorcist, Rome's chief exorcist and the Dean of Exorcists. He's left behind several books about his life, opinions, and his encounters with the devil. And like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the new supernatural horror movie, The Pope's Exorcist, comes out, I believe today when this episode goes live, April 14th. It stars Russell Crowe, who plays Father Amort. And the story is based on his memoirs. So definitely go and see it. If you if you found this uh, story interesting at all, I'm sure you'll enjoy the film as much as I will because I, I feel like this is a great story for a film. Right. And it's like, he's the guy, right? He is the guy. He's the OG exorcist. Yep. This is uh, him. For the for the Vatican and, and uh, Catholicism. Really, really interesting, honestly. I mean, I'm sure there's so many more stories in all of his books and you oh, could yeah. probably... Do a I, whole podcast on his stories. I don't even think they've all been translated yet, too. Yeah, that's true. Because he's Italian, so he speaks in Italian. He writes in Italian. But I think a lot of them have been translated to English, if you ever want to check them out. Yeah, that's cool. Which, even researching this episode, I'm sure, was difficult to... We, You know, a lot of oh. it is watching captions of him talking in yep. Italian, because he, he never spoke English. So yeah. And then just, you know, trying to find what info's been... Yeah, and translated. I, I think the hardest thing to characterize is that he was kind of a goofball. Yeah, uh, he was like fun, like the the thumbing his nose, and uh, he was making some really funny jokes in some of his interviews. Obviously, it wouldn't track for podcast listeners because it's all in Italian. Um, but yeah, he was talking about I don't know. He talked about food and fasting, and I, it seemed like he had a good sense of humor to him, even even though he was obsessed with this such a dark side of of faith um he seemed like even even at the end he's blowing raspberries at people crying you know yeah, it seemed like yeah. he's a funny guy so well it seems like he's a he really practiced what he preached right um it's like as far as i know there was no like dirt on him by any means like any bad experiences seemed, with him or him doing anything that was sketchy or i would hope that the 
the number one guy to fight yeah. Satan was <laughs> as clean as it gets, right? No, it's the devil in disguise, baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's that. actually the devil. Yeah, no, it's all that's really interesting. And I mean, Rose's story, especially in actually seeing what looks like pretty compelling evidence for spiritual possession, uh, or there's some undiagnosed situation going on there, which, you know, we can kind of talk about that a little bit of like, what are some other scenarios here other than spiritual possession, right? Yeah. And it's kind of a bummer that we don't have a lot of exorcisms actually on camera because there's they're private and whatnot it's the same reason we don't have people's therapy yeah, sessions HIPAA, right and yeah exactly yeah you know, can't can't put that out there yeah and i i think you know there there are some non-church sanctioned exorcisms i think um we covered one it was a warren files episode yeah they did yeah. a lot of they did some church sanctioned exorcisms but they did a lot of like low-level exorcisms just on their own yeah know? yeah so there, those Ed. are out there yeah um what was that one that was a crazy one his you can see his face transforming and like wounds appearing oh it was, yeah uh, oh, i wish i could remember his name but that was a wild one i don't know how how convinced i am though i don't know i people are gonna hate Pretty skeptical. me because yeah i'm just it's i think it's just in my nature to be skeptical especially i don't know I don't know where that stems from. Were you skeptical from early on, like in your faith? Like, were no, you pretty, I was like, I don't know. Growing up as a kid, I was the I prayed it every night before you were pretty bed. Like yeah, that was deep me. In and yeah, I think just over time, I don't know. It, it wasn't like a sudden change where all all of a sudden, yeah, it was it a was slow like, breakdown of things. And, yeah, yeah, and especially my teenage years, I don't know. Um, you probably kind of similar where you just yeah. start questioning things a little bit more. Yeah. Um, mine was, I had kind of a, mine was a, not really a gradual breakdown. I kind of had like a pivotal moment in my life where it, it was a, it was actually a, a stormy, a stormy night in Costa Rica. I was on a mission trip and there was a, and this was like when I was 17. You had to do mission trips. Oh yeah. I went on several mission trips. Um, oh, I went to Mexico, I went to Costa Rica, I went to Minneapolis, I went to Nashville, which a mission trip in the Christian church is a little bit different than like the Mormon church or anything like that. It's not quite as intense as that, but it is okay. like we would go and do a bunch of community service and we'd run like a vacation Bible school for like the local neighborhood kids and we'd go walk around and talk to people about Jesus and, and you know, play worship music and things like that. Um, but I had like this one night that forever, I don't know, I feel like it was a sign whether it was a sign from God or a sign from something else, I guess it wasn't God if it was leading me <laughs> away from the church, but it, it was like a thundery night and we were all sitting outside in this kind of courtyard and during praise and worship. And then I just had this, like, I just felt like so uncomfortable there that I like, got up and just kind of left the group. Everybody's like looking at me like, what the, what's he doing? You know, what's wrong with him? And yeah. so I walked away and I remember just going standing by the pool and just kind of looking up at the sky. And then all of a sudden just seeing lightning go across the sky. And I just had this like, epiphany about everything and i was like I, I just remember being like this is just like this doesn't explain it for me like there's something more intense and powerful going on here than i even understand and what they're saying in there and what they're telling me is actually going on just doesn't seem to add up for me and it was like at that moment that i realized i was like 
I got to go like figure this out for myself. Cause for me, it was like, I was told this over my entire life. This is what it is. This is how it works. This is, this is the, the process to going to heaven. But I kind of came to the realization that maybe it's not, you know, maybe, maybe I need to go on my own journey because my journey started before I was even capable of making the decision for myself. So it just was like, same yeah baptism and just like what you were you know it's just kind of like what you were programmed with your parents programmed you this way so once you're able to kind of shake the programming and kind of go on your own spiritual journey that's what i realized i needed to do and i was open to it bringing me back if that's what it meant me coming back to church and coming back to the group but ultimately that's not what happened and you know through other experiences and things that i had i realized well for a long time i was like i'm atheist baby I was like, yeah, same. I, I went like same thing. super rebellious, like, yeah. you know, screw all of it. I'm an atheist. God, this is horrible. I remember going to my, my grandparents who, so on my dad's side, they're very Catholic. My okay. dad grew up super Catholic. My grandparents to this day are in their nineties. They go to mass like every day. They're like super into it. My aunts, uncles, my dad's sisters are all Catholic still. My dad was like, no, Catholicism is not for me. So he he was actually kind of like getting out of religion. Then he met my mom who grew up in like a new agey Buddhist type household, like kind of believed in like gurus and a bunch of interesting kind of Eastern religion type stuff. And she ended up finding God in the Christian church and then ended up bringing my dad into it. And then that's how I ended up being raised that way. It's kind of a quite a journey, kind of a crazy story. yeah. Yeah. And so I think, trying to figure out bringing all back together here but because that's a whole another story i could go into but i think it's always good to you know despite all these experiences i've had and you've had i think it's always good to remain open and not be completely closed off to the idea of that there is things that you don't want to open yourself up to because if you think think about it from a psychological point of view if you feel your head because it's I know for me, and this is from my own personal experience, but like when I filled my head with dark, dark, dark stuff, you know, whether it's movies, uh, video games, music, even like I went through a period of time after I left the church where I was like, I am, I'm literally going straight to hell right now. Like I, yeah, it was like, you know, the heaviest, darkest, most brutal music I could possibly listen to. I looked the part, you know, I was like, Believe it or not, I had gauged ears. I was planning to get tatted all like throat slit. Like I wanted to look evil. Yeah. That yeah. was like my goal. I wanted people to be afraid of me. And when they saw me, they'd be like, that guy's possessed by the devil for sure. <laughs> and I think it was at the time, you know, my young self was like, that'll, t- that'll show them. Yeah. That'll get, this will get back. You know, it's like anger. It's like, I'll, I'll get back at them that way and, sh- and kind of go against everything they told me not to do. I'm going to do that now. Yeah. I, I kind of had, it's funny you bring up the word anger. I, I think that was, yeah, my atheist phase. I eventually realized, yeah, this is just rooted in anger, which isn't a healthy relationship for me to have with my spiritual journey either. So the foundation of that had to change. And another thing you said, you know, this concept of doubt and you were like, if, if I eventually come back to the church, then that was my journey. But I do have to go off and figure my own stuff out. Yeah. Even in the Catholic church, they say that doubt is like a part of the process. Right. For me, it backfired because I doubted it. 
And then I never came back after that. But I do think the people who have stronger Catholic faith were the ones who had doubt left and came back. I think those are more, you know, they're called like born again. Yeah. I think those are the more committed people because of the fact that they kind of went and tried something else out. Yeah. And then returned. Whereas in, yeah, if you're, you're baptized, you're baptized with, you know, no recollection of that baptism, no choice, you know, you reaffirm your faith through the constant ceremonies and whatnot. But yeah, it's, I think for me, I just never returned and that was fine because I think people should just be able to go doubt, have their own journey. If they want to come back, they can come back, but I never did. And I'm totally fine with that, but I'm also fine with people returning. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's a great way to look at it. And I think this is kind of on my mind right now too, because on my other podcast, Mile Higher, uh, one of our episodes, it's either out or coming up. We did a whole episode talking about the problem of evil and talking about more philosophical questions regarding God and, and thought experiments regarding, um, you know, is, is God all powerful, all knowing, you know, kind of like the the quintessential things that make God who he is according to Christianity and things like that. Like, is that actually true? And kind of like breaking that down. And so all that's like really fresh in my head. And I don't know why we're going from exercising demons to our religious journeys here, but But it's all connected. It is all all connected. And I think for me, like the, the concept of demons has been so instilled into me that there is no way I will ever be able to shake it. I will never be able to not have some belief in demons. I just don't think it'll be possible. I mean, I went years dude of like night terrors due to demonic things. I I don't know. I don't know if it was like, it wasn't, I've never really had like, I've never participated in any sort of, rituals or you know i've not even used a ouija board i've never like opened myself up directly to where you would pull that in but i think it was just the byproduct of reading the bible i also got really into the left behind series which talks about the end times basically nice. and the rapture and shit yeah. like shit gets wild after yeah. jesus comes back just fyi <laughs> like it gets in- insanely crazy and like i got really obsessed with the end times and like the apocalypse and i got really and even to this day i love that shit like i still watch all that stuff like the last of us i was like love this yeah like, this yeah. is like but it it infiltrates into my dreams and into my my fears and for the longest time after i left religion i would have night terrors where i would see what i believed were demonic entities like i would i would open my eyes in the middle of the night and i'd see black figures descending from my ceiling almost like a spider coming down out of my ceiling wow and i would just be laying there and i don't maybe it was like sleep paralysis or something i because i did feel kind of like paralyzed and things like that and it, that could be what it was but you know you look at the what causes sleep paralysis and and i think a lot of that is that all of that shit i've put in my head from my um journey through the church and christianity and and diving into hell and god it just like I mean, that's imprinted on your unconscious, right? So that's, yeah, yeah, you're, you're just projecting that, which makes sense. So it's like out of everything in the world that scares me, like, and then this goes for movies too. Like when I I love horror movies, the things that scare me the most are the supernatural. My girlfriend's the same way. She's the exact same way. Your girlfriend has a religious background as well. Yeah. She's Exmo, but yeah. (laughs) Exmo, I love it. 
Yeah, and it makes sense though when you think about it. It's like yeah, because we'll watch the goriest yeah, yeah. stuff. Like, I've watched Saw. Like yeah, I've yeah. watched. Um, I mean, even even worse than that, Rob Zombie movies to like uh, Human Centipede, Human Centipede to fucking the yeah. class. Oh yeah, dude, all that shit. And like, it definitely disturbs me. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not like, oh yeah, this is awesome. I'm like, this is disturbing as hell. I don't know why I just watched that, but it doesn't put the same fear and doesn't make its make its way into my dreams and my subconscious mind like the concept of demons yep. or the devil i mean one of the movies that really fucked me up for a while was like deliver us from evil um that one that one really fucked me up for a I've while i've seen it um drag me to hell i think is another one the movie devil um yeah. that m night Shyamalan film yeah yeah where they're in the elevator yeah, that's yeah. a great one i took kendall to that on one of my, my wife on one of my first dates with her and she still is like i'm fucked up from that <laughs> she like she's not into that at all but anyway i'm getting way off yeah. the track anyways here. next episode yeah. we're gonna have kendall on the podcast yeah, we'll talk about <laughs> devil with her um yeah. no i did want to get daniel's thoughts on this though um what what's after watching that exorcism and just I know we haven't touched on your background and all, but what is your, what do you kind of make of all this? And from your opinion? So I'm kind of the opposite of you, Josh. I wasn't raised in a very religious household. I mean, my mom was raised Catholic. My dad was raised uh, Protestant, I believe, but Boo. Um, <laughs> sorry. <no. laughs> um, but from a young age, I kind of just, I, I didn't, I never felt comfortable in church ever. I don't know why. I just, the, it kind of, I just never felt comfortable. I'll leave it at that. Um, but watching Rosa get exercised, it, I, I'm not a, I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. What? But, what are you wearing, bro? I know I lied on my resume. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I just, I definitely think there is something wrong with her. I do think there is yeah. some underlying conditions, something like that. I don't know if it's necessarily demon possession. I was looking at some articles while you guys were talking, and I found this article by a woman named Elena Blanco Suarez, who has a PhD in neuroscience, so much more qualified than I am. And she was explaining that one disorder that could be a a mirror to being possessed by a demon would be something called anti-NMDAR encephalitis which is a neurological disease first identified by Dr. Joseph Dalmo and colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania in 2007. And uh, it's an autoimmune uh, disease. And some of the symptoms can be behavior issues like paranoia, hallucinations, aggression, uh, cognition issues, memory deficits, speech disorders, loss of consciousness, um, sporadic movements such as arms, legs, and abnormal movements with the face or mouth seizures and autonomic dysfunction wow and i think seizures is one of the pretty common things in exorcisms especially when you're talking about foaming from the mouth what that's what i go to is is seizures well back in the day didn't they think that people who were having seizures were possessed yeah because they didn't understand what a seizure was way right. back then yeah. yeah and i think it's kind of obvious that she isn't having just one long seizure in this because she is you know somewhat lucid yeah, it's it's weird how she's almost it comes out of it manually versus like she's not like dazed or anything after it or like you know if you watch somebody coming out of, coming out of a seizure they're like oh you know kind of like they're kind of like disoriented and and kind of 
trying to understand what just happened and look look more more impacted by it as opposed to her it's almost like it's like a switch and then yeah, all she of a had sudden, a smile like, on her face yeah she's right? like instantly yeah. out of it which if you're looking at it from a, a neurological point of view it seems that there's something going on mentally that's kind of pulling her in and out of it right so so you tend to lean more towards this is some type of undiagnosed psychological disorder um or what's also interesting too is i was i was I think one of either one of these neurosurgeons in here were talking about it or I was reading it somewhere else, but there's also certain types of tumors in certain parts of the brain that impact speech, impact some of some of the uh, behavior and mannerisms that you're seeing uh, with people who are quote unquote possessed. Yeah. That unless you literally go get, in, uh, you know, a brain scan, you're nobody's going to ever be able to figure that out. Like right. even if you go see a psychiatrist, they're not going to be able to tell that you have a tumor in your your brain. They might be able to suspect that something might be going on, but they don't know until they actually scan you. And what's interesting about Rosa is that she she went through nine sessions plus uh, when it comes to exorcisms, and nothing worked. Right? She's seeing the top exorcist in the world. And still, after all of these sessions, she's not getting any better. It's almost having no effect on her. I know there was that one patient. It was like seventeen years, right? And like, damn. And they're like, well, after the fourth year, it got better. But yeah, it's like, is there? What's the end goal? And if after so long, nothing's really changing, there was the one. I think he was a, a neuroscientist. Something he he mentioned exorcism as as a, a therapy. Yeah. As a as and I can see that actually. I think people do get some sort of therapeutic. If you're religious, visceral. though, if you're religious, that's the yeah, thing. This does true. not does not mean anything right. to somebody who doesn't understand what like who's going to go sit down with an exorcist who doesn't believe in God or doesn't have a faith of any sort right. in a higher power. What would be the point of that? Right. You that and that's the thing is you got to believe in what they're doing for it to work or for it to be meaningful or impactful in any way. So that, and that's where I, where it gets me is it's like, it's clearly it's, there's a clear reason for why people that undergo exorcisms are people of faith of, you know, whether it's, you know, they're strong in their faith or not. That's another question, but they do believe in heaven. They believe in hell. They believe in the God. They believe in uh, the devil and versus, you know, and that would make sense for it to be some type of therapeutic form. Although I think it's, questionable that that's real good therapy or not i mean right, yeah you know, you're kind of reinforcing i feel like the behavior a little bit by saying like cassie you know you're making that person believe that there is some a demonic entity inside them so true you're almost how's that making it better I yeah feel like you're, you're almost inadvertently making it worse yeah, yeah like you're you're trying to make it better but you're also confirming their worst fears right, right. That there's an evil spirit within them so i don't know i'd call it therapy but for somebody religious i guess that is one angle that you could look at. I do think there's also a possibility that there is some other unseen explanation for this uh, un unexplained explanation for some of this behavior because some of these doctors like like you might have heard there are cases throughout their careers that they're like this defies all science and it could just be science hasn't caught up with some of these things as we talk about all the time with the paranormal world is like there's a lot of phenomena that is still unexplained to this day. 
But that doesn't mean that one day science will catch up to it and we'll be able to explain it with science. Maybe there's some natural law we haven't discovered yet that, or, you know, this unseen dimension that we don't know about that's all around us. We just can't see it. We can't measure it. And one day we'll be able to do that. And imagine that shit. Like it'll open up this whole other realm of possibilities for all the, I mean, we talk about UFOs and things like that. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of talk about that being, you know, some type of interdimensional situation yeah, or transdimensional. Yeah, to say, I mean, they were even saying in their discernment process, usually the patients that are brought to them do have physical symptoms, like right. illness and, and whatever. And, you know, I'm a skeptic, but just to bring this thought out there, who's to say that demonic possession doesn't infiltrate someone through an actual physical affliction or something neurological like who's to say that satan isn't working by attacking your brain or something like that obviously i don't think i believe that but just for the sake of discussion that's a really good point because i also think of is what you put in what you get out you know what i mean and i mean that in the sense of like if you expose yourself to these dark entities and forces and ideas even even if it's just can an idea or something that you perceive in reality manifest into a physical thing within within you like it's interesting that these people are diving into if you don't you know dove into satanism or satanic rituals or you get into uh, black magic or just occult texts in general i mean a lot of people uh believe and from experience have said that because all of you out there who warned us so so often not to fuck with ouija board <laughs> is because like you don't know what you're making contact with for one but is it even just the idea of contacting like because we were talking about the psychological effects of the ouija board are you actually or is your mind creating something that right. is not actually physically there but mentally you're creating this reality that's now seems real to you it's like what you're you're creating what you're believe you're perceiving the power of the mind man and that's and that's what we get back to is like maybe it's some type of mind thing is like if you just like surround yourself with darkness surround yourself with evil does that evil even though you're just consuming it through your eyes or you're just reading about it or you're just watching it can that enter the brain and then the brain does something with it where it begins manifesting a physical version of it outwardly through yourself it's like i believe music influences you i believe it can influence you physically think about it you warm up daniel's a mma fighter you warm up for a fight what kind of music are you listening to some would some might be listening to classical but chances are you're listening listening to some heavy shit yeah that's going to get you fired up right percent why is that because that music does what hypes me up it gets me going gets me energized right the rhythm right so i think there's something to that and i think music's one of those things i know for me i'm i listen to music based on emotion and mood a lot of the time so depending on how i'm feeling i'll put on a certain genre of music i'll put on a certain artist and when i'm angry it's always metal you know deathcore or you know i'm listening to like really dark underground rap and it's just about it's all evil is it, evil in a, in a loose sense but it's like talking about very dark subjects murder drugs uh suicide yeah you know thing 
very heavy topics like that. But what I found is that prolonged listening of that over and over again has, has started to influence my psyche. And what's interesting is my parents would always tell me this growing up, like, that's why we don't want you to listen to it because it does affect you. And I'm like, oh, whatever. And, and I'm not saying this is the case for everybody. I'm just saying for me personally, music does affect me very deeply. Yeah. And the could darker be, it is, the more it's... Could be cyclical, right? It's like you're sad, so you listen to sad music because it has that, you get that emotional connection to it. It's yeah. cathartic and it helps you. But then maybe listening to sad music then connects you back to sadness. So it's like kind of repeats yeah. itself. Yeah. But I'm the opposite, actually. When I get super pissed, I listen to Paul Simon, Shania Twain. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. Oh, man. That's a lie. That's I, I, a, I was like, what? No, I think my, my cathartic angry music, I think, is Death Grips. I love Death Grips. I get a very healthy reaction, though. I don't think I... It's not, it's not anger, but it's just this, like, I need this high energy release, you know? Well, think about the bands that make it and why they make that kind of music right yeah. there's often deeper meaning to it for them not always but most of the time there's a reason they play that type of music they're they live that life they're part of that scene because it is it's embodying more than just the music it's them it's them as people and i mean it's the same reason there's christian artists out there there's you know religious music and you know their influence there it's deeper than that and i think and that's just one example. Music, I think the same could be same, you know, for movies, things like that. The way that movies make you feel. And if you were to, you know, if I, all I did for seven days straight was watch movies, all these horror movies that are extremely dark, potentially dealing with Satanism or, or demons, things like that. I know that for me personally, by the end of that, I would be in a very dark place. I'd be feeling a certain type of way because I've done it before. And I know for me, it influences me to the point where I might feel angry, you know, potentially, you know, wanting to manifest that physically in some sense. Not, you know, I would ne- obviously I would never hurt anybody or anything, but like go punch a wall or something or like go beat up a, a punching bag. Absolutely. Like, like there's something I, I'm just saying there's something more to that. Yeah. than I think what we've even been able to understand or study that maybe could feed into some of these things like if you think about rosa i I would be curious to know more about what she filled herself with when it comes to media and you know was she obsessed with this idea of being possessed was she obsessed with something dark and evil that potentially over time manifested into this physical entity within her and that's what we're seeing is a physical manifestation of all these things that accumulated in her head and it's just something science can't really explain or study right now yeah but of course it could be disorder or you know a lot of other things too. yeah so just I, a theory but i think we also see what we want to see a lot of the times totally. um do you ever have you ever seen hereditary oh yeah that's a good litmus test for some people because um you can kind of take that movie either way obviously the movie's titles hereditary you can look at it as a mental illness being passed through mm-hmm. through generations but you can also look at it as a strictly paranormal movie, and that's why it's such a great movie. You can look at it through different lenses. But um, yeah, a more skeptic-minded person could see something in one light, and someone right, who is right. more open to belief sees something in a totally different way. So, I guess that's the beauty of being human: is that we all are able to perceive everything independently, and we're obviously influenced by others and 
and our parents are a huge part of our you know core beliefs right like that's a huge part of it but yeah i don't know i just i think it's important to, to challenge your belief systems and and uh you know go on your own journey and figure out things for yourself because i think that's the only way you'll truly know and like for me i i still feel like i'm like this wandering soul in a way like i still like i've nothing really makes a lot of sense to me and there's so i think that's healthy though yeah i think that's a good way to be because i'm i'm the same way we don't we can't really understand the world there's too much going on it's hard though because like your rational mind wants to be like i need an explanation yeah i grew up with this whole clear-cut understanding of this is what life is this is what death is this is the process to get from a to b and when you remove all that and you're left with oh you really you know talk about an existential crisis man you start i got in really into astronomy and cosmology and and started like learning about the universe and how big it is and just what's going on and obviously when you start getting into aliens and ufos and this idea of life elsewhere and consciousness and all these things it's really it gets really trippy really really oh yeah there's a lot we don't know a lot of mysteries of the world but yeah i I gotta wrap it up here because we're we could sit here all day talking about this. Yeah. Maybe we need to do an episode just talking about uh philosophical ideas and talking about you know our upbringings a little bit more if you're interested in that. Let us know. But first and foremost, let us know what you think of Father Mort. May he rest in peace. Seems like a, a really, really great man, a very spiritual man, and garnered tons of respect from everybody and uh the catholic faith and even those not in the catholic i mean he has my respect i mean going toe to toe -toe with the devil every day that's a tough job man i should be on mike rowe show (laughs) (laughs) toughest jobs in the the world are dirty Dirty jobs that's a dirty (laughs) job too man exorcist is a dirty job (laughs) but that is it for us today thanks again for joining us for another episode of lights out make sure you're subscribed on youtube following us on spotify and we will see you next week with another good one Until then, lights out, everybody.